welcome to episode 10 of Social X, Humentum's monthly podcast. I'm your host this week, Caitlin Holland. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at Humentum. And I'm joined today by Saba Al-Muguslap, a, a board member of Humentum and also CEO at Asfari Foundation. Prior to joining the foundation, Saba was CEO of Humanitarian Leadership Academy, HLA, where she established a global network of academy centers and worked with over 80 organizational partners who were committed to promoting the localization agenda for the humanitarian sector. Prior to HLA, for many years, she worked as country director with Save the Ch Children International in Jordan, where she was responsible for advocating for disadvantaged communities, as well as the successful futures of children and young people. So we're very excited to have her on the show today. Lots of incredible experience we'd love to dive into. Saba, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. Um, so I've already given a little background, obviously, to your career, but I would love to hear kind of in your own words, how did you get started in humanitarian and development work? And how did you kind of come to where you are today? Thank you. Um, well, I graduated to you know, practice engineering. Um, that was my fascination, physics and, and maths. And in my head, these were the subjects that would never tell a lie. And then when I started doing a little bit of that, I realized that, you know, machines can be easily fixed, but it's people that we have to work on. Because if we get people to grasp the knowledge and, and have access to the learning they need, then every machine around the world can be fixed. I come from a region that was always troubled with um, conflict, um, originally from Jordan. And uh, Jordan was always the safe havens for all refugees from around uh, the region, from um, West Bank, Gaza, from Lebanon, from Syria, from Iraq. So we were always faced with those challenges day in, day out. And for a country that is quite poor in, when it comes to its natural resources, it was quite a, a burden to find a way to include refugees in the um, national responsibility to keeping people living a decent life. Um, and that really just fascinated me. How can we coexist with all the conflict that we have and the limited resources? And how can we make sure that human beings are not the victims of their circumstances, particularly when those circumstances are not of their choice? And it was then that I decided that, you know, engineering can be done by others, but this is my fascination. And I went on um, doing uh, this type of work for almost 25 years now, and I'm still enjoying it. That's incredible. Yes. It's so interesting to hear what people studied who ended up in development work because it's such a wide range of backgrounds. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned you're from an area that's always had lots of conflict and, and some crises, and you've also worked um, in that area and other areas with lots of conflict and crisis. Are there any moments or stories that kind of stand out as transformational to you personally and to your career? So many, but one is quite close to my heart. I remember we were um, um, trying to convince parents in a particular area in Jordan to send girls past, post the age of um, 14 to school to finish education. And I remember, you know, the conversations that we had with the parents around the fact that we come in with foreign agendas. And it, 
just having that conversation where we realize that coming in with the jargon that we speak in the sector doesn't really solve the problem. Before we go in, before we start lecturing people on what they need to do, which we believe is the right thing, be it, you know, girls' education or, uh, the, you know, kids' right to protection and play, we have to listen, we have to learn, and we have to contextualize how we send the messages that we feel very strongly about. So it took, it was um, an interesting moment in my career where I realized that we tend sometimes not to listen. And when we listen, we do not understand because we're so, we're so saturated with ideas that are all right but not necessarily culturally appropriate. So being humble enough to say, I need to learn before I can deliver a message, and I need to learn from every single person I interact with is, is always fascinating. And it took a lot for us to realize that empowering girls does not happen in a vacuum. You have to work with the parents because those girls are surrounded of spheres of influence. So you can't plan or you cannot change people's lives in projects. Uh, you, that any change you advocate for has to be comprehensive and has to be inclusive. Otherwise, it won't last long. Right. And also, it sounds like projects that are designed outside of the cultural context by people who don't live there, right? That's that's when it's, you start to get into that kind of trouble. So that'll play right into some of the localization stuff I'd love to talk to you about, too. Um, but before we get into that, you, your focus on stability and security for kind of young people and girls has been a major one throughout your career. And while there's so many things to focus on in humanitarian work, why is this specific cause near and dear to your heart? When it comes to girls in particular, I mean, uh, I'm, um, I have a weak spot for them because I always believe that they're the most vulnerable in any context, particularly in a context where um, there's a lot of conservatism. Um, there's a... a, a, a a norm that is acceptable when it comes to girls not finishing their school or not you know going to school at all so you find yourself having to fight against social norms and i'm i'm not generalizing here these are particular pockets in every culture where people are very conservative but i genuinely believe we are as strong as the weakest you know, link in the chain. So un until these girls are empowered enough, the generations to come won't, won't be free to think independently and to decide what life they want to live. And we tend to always intervene post the fact. We react to things. We do not act or sometimes you know, proactively decide that this is the kind of change we want to see and that's how you go about it. So for me, girls were always the, the weakest link and I always... I genuinely believe that we are just as, as, as strong as the weakest link. So working with them is critical if we are to build strong societies. The other bit is really seeing or being deployed to so many war zones and seeing the number of men that get lost um, as a result of war and the number of women who are left behind, so vulnerable, undereducated, underskilled, cannot generate income to you know sustain their lives and, and send their kids to school, uh, that, that is heartbreaking. So you, you start believing that if you really want a better tomorrow, you have to invest in today. Education cannot wait. And it breaks my heart, you know, in all our um, regional responses to the different emergencies that happened in this region, education was always underfunded. 
as if it's a luxury for a refugee to be educated. But if you really want to stabilize um, an area of conflict and bring people to have a dialogue instead of shooting uh, you know, um, bullets at each other, you have to educate them. So stability does not happen without education because that will lead to um, productive dialogue, productive discussions that can lead to a solution that can become sustainable. So for me... Yes, I talk about stability a lot, but in the heart of everything comes education, really. Yeah, and I guess that that makes sense as you then evolved to being the CEO of HLA, where education was the primary focus, right, of those academy centers. Where was the intersection of education and the localization agenda when you worked with HLA? So it was was a a practical translation or um, operationalization of localization in its most you know practical sense because the whole idea was democratizing access to quality learning and knowledge and one of the things that we were quite keen on is to make sure that knowledge does not travel only from the global north to the global south because we we have the tendency of translating rather than contextualizing knowledge as it's being formed in Geneva or London or DC. But, you know, the actual learnings happen on the ground. From my experience being deployed to um, very tough places around the Middle East region, you start realizing that learning happens as a result of necessity. It becomes a survival thing. You have, If you really want to survive, you have to learn how to work with the very limited resources and make your life better. So there's a lot of learning that goes undocumented and it just gets forgotten. And that breaks my heart. I mean, how, what can we do to ensure that the local to global is just as valued and recognized as the global to local? Because I genuinely believe that... Um, a group of uh, people in need in, 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 in a poverty pocket in Jordan may relate better with a poverty pocket, say, in the outskirts of London than, you know, those outskirt poor people relating to central London. So there's, um, there's a common ground that is built based on human needs, you know. And it's really interesting because when you, when you have the, the chance and you're blessed to travel the world, you start realizing that there's a common language between all those who are vulnerable. And this language is not the language we speak, you know. They all have the same aspirations, they have the same dreams, and they suffer from the lack of the same things. You bring them together and magic can happen. So for me, the academy was, you know, a dream come true. How can you capture the learning as it happens in Bangladesh or the Philippines or Jordan or Lebanon or Kenya and say, this is what the locals are doing. You know, locals are just as smart as globals. And I don't know who decided who's global and who's local. You know, each one of us is local where, where he or she is. So for me, that was really um, um, the driving force behind the academy. Capture learning at the local level, make it available between different locales around the world. So that South to South connection and you know, make make sure that it gets recognized as it should um, um, in conferences and platforms that are labeled as global. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that described, that common language between kind of disadvantaged communities across countries described like that. But it's so true. Um, and it's so true that it deviates from typical language. It's just, there's a common understanding based on their life experience, right? Yeah. Um, so localization obviously has, it's been on the forefront of the humanitarian kind of agenda and part of the conversation for many years, many decades, in fact. But 
it's picked up steam in kind of a new context lately uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement that sparked by killings in the United States and then kind of spread worldwide um, has also picked up steam recently. And the, the, the new context of shifting kind of decolonizing uh, development and shifting power um, back to the people who are impacted by the work and, and actually being able to create the positive change themselves. Um, and so what's your perspective on, you know, are we any closer to a truly kind of localized model than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I wish, I wish, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to hold into whatever hope I have within because, um, you know, observing the state of affairs these days, it's just heartbreaking. You know, people claim that we are most connected nowadays than ever before. And I feel that we're most divided than ever before. You know, at, at a global level, within each and every nation, there is a, a genuine sense of uh, very deep divides. And I feel that siloing people and dividing them makes it easier to control and, you know, regulate what they think, what they believe and what facts they consume. So are we closer? I'm not sure, actually. I think we have all the means. You know, people are keen to take control um, um, and, and not to be led by those who may not have their best interests in heart. Uh, technology is making it so easy for knowledge to, and information, be it true or not, you know, false or not, to, to go around the world in absolute no time. What I think our focus should be on two things. The first one is understanding the knowledge consumption patterns, because I think these are changing dramatically. Um, the younger generation definitely consume knowledge in a completely different way than the way I did when I was their age. We cannot be writing long white papers anymore. We cannot be philosophical and very high level and speak a language that, you know, the, the, the regular man cannot understand. We have to simplify things. And I tell you for a fact, it's much easier to complicate things than to simplify them. I think we sometimes hide behind the complexity of the message because we don't know what we're talking about. Simplifying it so that it can be consumed by the majority is, is, a, is a lot of work. The second is really helping people or educating people to um, interrogate the, the information that comes their way. I mean, it's enough to spend half an hour on Facebook to be completely, completely deluded and to, to lose track and, and to get so overwhelmed and confused to the point where you say, you know what, I don't want to engage anymore. And that's my fear that some people, because of, of their inability to deal with the massive flood of, of data and, and knowledge, they are going back into their inner selves. They don't want to engage. Um, and these two lead to individuals losing faith in the fact that they can change their reality. And if that, and that's the worst thing that can happen to us as a human race, if you lose faith that you are an active agent of change, you become very passive. And that is exactly what it takes for the worst thing to happen. It takes enough people who are passive, do not say no, do not have an opinion, do not vote, for instance, for, for the worst to happen. So how, what can we do? How can we better understand knowledge consumption patterns, um, particularly for the younger generation, and better utilization of um, uh, data flow and the selectivity of what you consume when you are 
you know, sitting in front of your screen or holding your smartphone and just flipping through and getting, you know, bombarded by bits of news that you can't, you have no way of validating. So we need to be smarter. And with we, I say those of us who, I mean, for lack of a better word, think that they are the source of knowledge, you know, are we doing it the right way? Are we sharing the right type of knowledge? Are we sharing it the right way? And are we giving enough evidence to support the knowledge and, and, um, and make it, you know, consumable? The other thing that I fear a lot is the, um, the rigidness and the messages we tend to share with each other these days. That, until we manage to humanize the message and humanize the acts of localization, it'll be another operational, I don't know, matrix with some KPIs, and it'll be projectized. Localization cannot be projectized. Um, and with that comes my, my second question to you. Are we ready as you know, large global organizations to change our business models? Because if we are truly supportive of localization, then we cannot continue to work the way we do. We have to do some serious reviews, organizational reviews to how we operate, how we partner, um, how we plan, how we design programs. That cannot be done in, in London or DC. You know, we have to be working with people on the ground. So, so many challenges, but look, this hope. I mean, we're not giving up on that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so many longstanding ways of working and communicating that don't necessarily play well in the current context, especially just in the last year or two. I mean, which is crazy that it's changed that much just in 2020 alone, but we all know 2020 has been a game changer of a year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about and, and complicated. Um, but you mentioned kind of engagement and connecting you know, connecting people and resources and some of the more tactical stuff that is needed and skills that are needed to be able to do this well. Um, you have a lot of experience, it seems, in your background with connecting organizations and people. I mean, you, you coordinated 45 different organizations on the Syrian response. And then, of course, all the partner organizations you worked with through the Humanitarian Leadership Academy. Um, that is, that seems to me to be a skill that people struggle with, um, just community engagement and mobilization and, con and connecting those other organizations to each other. Do you have any tips kind of on how <laughs> to do that best or how it worked for you and the ways you've done it? I have few and I lost some friends because of those few tips. <laughs> I think it matters a lot that we, as, you know, uh, as, um, Leaders and, and, and you know, uh, workforces within organizations learn from the get-go that it is not about the visibility of the logo. It is about the sustainability of the impact. So it doesn't matter who gets the credit. What really matters is the collective act and its ability to create an impact that lasts beyond the logo in a country. I worked for or with an organization, um, a partner organization, uh, a long time ago, and I remember them celebrating being in a country for 30 years in, in the Middle East, and they were um, a global organization. And I, I, couldn't, I could not hold back. I said, you know, this works, this isn't the positive thing. To be there for 30 years means that you work so hard to sustain the dependence of people on you. You sustained your business model, but you did not transfer knowledge. 
you did not establish a local version of you, you did not sustain your impact. And I think our, how we view success needs to be challenged and needs to be changed. And so that's one. The second is the, the power of the collective. Look, be it with Save the Children during the Sierra Response or the Academy or now, you know, working with the Asfari Foundation. If there is an idea that I genuinely believe in, that I try to invite to the table all those who equally believe in it and can complement it so that we collectively can implement it in its best way, because none of us know it all. You know, and it's really, it, it takes a little bit of humbleness from us, those who are referred to as leaders, to come to the table and say, I know what I know, I know what I don't know, and I don't know what I don't know. And that's why I invite others, we collaborate in a meaningful, true way, we pool the resources, because the world doesn't have endless financial resources. And I tell you, there's a, a genuine sense of fatigue. So how can we pull our act together, be it financially or technically, and partner with those who are going to last way more than we do in their own countries and communities and make sure that we plant the seeds, we finance the change, because it's critical to understand that change doesn't happen by itself, it has to be financed. And then we create an exit model, an exit plan, and make sure that, be it the community or the society, have enough knowledge able to mobilize resources and to sustain impact beyond the project or our presence in any particular country. So when you say, I mean, I always say it to my colleagues, when you say collaboration, you have to mean it. And you have to understand that with collaboration, a little bit of your organizational ego should be let go of. Otherwise, it, you won't succeed. So it takes, I think, I don't know, it takes a little bit of, um, you know, putting Einstein's... Uh, equation into practice ego equals one over knowledge you know the more we know the the humbler we become and our egos shrink and it's just then that we can really partner in a meaningful way and collaborate to sustain change beyond our logos and organizational names and egos and you know uh, recognitions that are celebrated in a way that does not necessarily mean we've succeeded yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, having a true collaboration or true network of organizations collaborating mean that your own personal agenda has to step back and step to the side a little bit sometimes, which is really hard for people to let go of. And maybe that is why it's a skill people struggle with so much. Um, well, while you're dispelling some advice, uh, I hate to bring the conversation around to COVID-19, but obviously it had to come up at some point. I think that leaders across all sectors and industries are struggling with or thriving in uh, leading through a crisis right now. They're being faced with leading through a crisis, uh, how, however they feel they're handling it. Um, you've led through many crises. Uh, do you have any kind of advice specifically around that too, the best way to, the best way to maintain your kind of goals and direction and, and leadership through, you know, an unforeseen kind of un, out of control, out of your control crisis like this one? Yeah, I mean, in, in short-term emergencies, we tend to react as we act. And that by itself means that you will have your share of mistakes and lessons learned and what have you. But you know that there's a window of six months to save as many lives as possible. Right. With COVID-19, right. despite all the pain that comes with it, but it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So I think a, a collective 
moment of reflection is needed where we all come together and say, okay, here are the tools that we know of. There are so many tools that need to be deployed from other industries to the humanitarian and development industry. We need to listen, we need to learn, and we need to unlearn all the old ways of doing business. And you can't approach your five-year strategy or strategic planning or your you know, operational planning or your annual budgeting the old way or the traditional way. You have to you know, broaden your margin of um, uh, contingency and, and dealing with the unknown because that's going to be critical. The second thing is really the agility. Um, I fear that the heavy, very complex, multi-layered organizations may be not able to change um, uh, course or, uh, you know, amend their way of operating and, and that they will be challenged um, to introduce uh, new ways of doing business. So the more agile and, and responsive to the actual need you are, uh, the better chances you have to survive. The third, I think, is something that Humentum was you know, pioneering for quite a while, which is this whole culture of you know, using technology to the best possible, to work from home, to connect with partners. And that's something that we all need to learn how to do in a better way you know i think covid-19 showed us that a lot of the money that we used to spend could have been saved and spent on projects and investments in people because we tend you know we had the tendency of traveling across the globe twice three times a month to attend a conference or to meet with someone why on earth would we do that anymore I think environmentally we're responsible to change our habits. So COVID-19 is not the most positive thing, but I think a lot of positive changes are going to be imposed on us. And we have, the, you know, we have to either choose to amend our behavior as individuals and organizations to be responsive and fit for the future. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves obsolete. My only fear when it comes to COVID-19 is the digital poverty. Uh, the digital poverty between those who, you know, can have a conversation like the one we're having. You're sitting in D.C., I'm sitting in Amman, Jordan now. Um, and, you know, we can easily, you know, feel, talk, touch each other virtually and be together. What if I don't have internet connection? What if I don't have a, a, a laptop or, um, I don't know, what if I don't know my way around a laptop? Um, so that digital poverty may be another thing that needs to be strongly introduced into the narrative of people who work in development and humanitarian sectors because it cannot be ignored. I think that in the future, in the very soon future, we'll see that um, the differences between societies or nations or even communities within the same society is going to be defined by accessibility to technology and savviness, you know, um, digital literacy. Do I know how to use this machine and do I use it for the right thing? Uh, so that, that is really my, my, my biggest fear nowadays is uh, that the, the deep um, uh, gap that will continue to grow if we do not address it between those who have access and those who do not. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was kind of going to ask, you know, what do you think about people? So we actually had a guest on this podcast, Luol Mayan, who is from, uh, he grew up in a refugee camp in South Sudan. He taught himself how to build video games, um, but he walked two hours every day to an internet cafe and two hours back just to have access to a computer for two hours. So six hours, four of it was transportation, walking to and from, um, 
And that was the only way to get, you know, before he was able, his mom was able to save up and help him get a laptop. I do, I do feel like smartphones have really helped in the sense that a lot of places where people don't have access to computers, they will still have access to a phone sometimes. Um, but a lot of what we're talking about, I mean, Zoom calls, yes, but a lot of, um, a lot of it requires more than just a phone still. And part of that is the way that we're going back to the disseminating information. We're not necessarily keeping in mind that someone's only access could be a smartphone. You know, it's, you try and mobile optimize everything, but that's still not necessarily the, the primary way we're thinking about getting our messages out. Um, so it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, one, one of the other maybe related fears is the, you know, in, in the absence of stable or uh, stable income, families will have to prioritize so who in the family will have access to a smartphone or to internet, um, you know, data? Um, would it be the, you know, the boy? Would it be the girl? Would it be the mother? Would it be the father? So a lot is, needs to be researched in terms of all the barriers that will make, you know, gender um, equity another big challenge caused by COVID-19. Um, so, yes, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. Yeah, um, so there's, there's a lot of people, another kind of side effect of COVID-19 is there's a lot of people who are, well, there's a lot of jobs, I suppose, that need more people than they're getting. And then there's a lot of people looking for jobs that they can't get because a lot of places aren't hiring, um, kind of including, including positions in the humanitarian and development sector. Um, what would your advice be, not in this context necessarily, just more generally, for people who, as someone who's had a long career um, in humanitarian development work, people who really want to help right now, um, but are struggling to get into the sector because of just lack of jobs, especially in their kind of background. Um, I think the advice I have is one that we're trying to put into practice with the Asfari Foundation. How can you connect those who know and wish to engage with those who do not know but are on the ground? Um, and, you know, creating that kind of organic network of mentors and coaches who may be sitting in, you know, the comfort of their homes somewhere in, in the global north, but are very keen to be engaged and to connect at the very human level with someone who need their expertise. So creating that, you know, those networks of, of human to human connection where my knowledge can benefit someone who's living in South Sudan and need to, I don't know, fix a, a, a phone. It doesn't have to be really humanitarian in the typical sense, but fix their phone or, uh, you know, connect uh, water from a reservoir to I don't know where. I mean, you can name it. And my, my again, my concern is that such way of connecting people and allowing the flow of knowledge and expertise and allowing people who are really keen to engage to find the right venues might be limited as well by um, internet accessibility and having the right device in in the hands of those who need to be connected. So when it comes to COVID-19, I think it showed us more than ever before that solutions cannot be siloed. And problems cannot be broken down into bits and pieces, you know. This is a problem that is challenging and changing every aspect of life. And until we think and plan comprehensively, we may find ourselves still, you know, struggling to react, but we are not acting in a way that is impactful. Um, a lot of unlearning and relearning will be required from all of us. Um, you know, I, I, I had to 
beg my son, who is studying virtual reality and gamification, to teach me how to interact in, in, in the virtual world. And I was like, you know, yes, I have 20 whatever years of experience, but I don't have this knowledge. It's the young generation who have that knowledge. So to have, you know, the younger generation mentoring the ones of us who claim to be of experience so that you can cross-fertilize the up-to-date technological and digital knowledge with the historical kind of experience and expertise that was built over tens of years is going to be very crucial as well. Um, so, yeah, these are ways through which you can uh, shift the way you engage. You don't have... I don't think that the future of humanitarian humanitarianism is going to be the typical cowboyish kind of acts where you, you know wear your your um, uh, uh, jungle clothes and carry your backpack and travel half the world half half the way across the world to be in a refugee camp. If refugee camps do have access to uh, the right people who are willing to teach, hold hand, mentor and coach, then I think there's enough people on the ground to get the job done. Surgeries are being, doing, being done virtually these days, so I, I don't think it's going to be that difficult for us to help people help themselves. Great. I know your time is limited, and I have one kind of final question that I'm sure um, is on everyone's mind who's listening to this, being inspired by your uh, story and your own career. Uh, what especially with all the challenges we face kind of now and always in this, um, in humanitarian development work, what keeps you motivated? What has kept you really inspired by this work? It's the most rewarding line of business you can ever be fortunate enough to join. Uh, to know that you fought for a vulnerable girl to be sent to school, if you do nothing but send one girl to school in your 20 years of career, that is just rewarding. And as a mother of two you know, grown-up boys, I call them boys, they're men, um, I'm selfish enough to want to, you know, work hard so that their future will be better than my past. And I think, you know, I'm always driven by the fact that I'm a mother and I genuinely believe that my kids, just like all other kids around the world, deserve a better future. I feel a bit embarrassed sometimes because our generation did not leave the world in a good shape. You know, we 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 abused the the the, the environment. We were not aware enough of our impact on on the climate, and uh, we have not engaged in a collaborative way to solve problems that need to be solved. And I worry that we're leaving the coming generation with so many problems to solve. So it's a, it's a sense of duty, um, um, a bit of selfishness, being a mother, and uh, the reward you get. I mean, the smile on the face of a child that, you know, find a dry tent to stay in after walking for weeks trying to escape um, the war in his or her village and crossing to um, um, a place that you call safe haven is, is just um, priceless. It, it I mean, just talking to you now about it, I'm, I might just, you know, tears might come to my eyes, but it just brings back lots of memories. And uh, every person that I met in these contexts taught me a lot. Uh, it's a, they are a living example of resilience and uh, um, their love to life is always inspiring. So you go to those places and you leave much more knowledgeable than when you go, because if you allow yourself to learn from these people, they have a lot to offer. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really, really inspiring to talk to you. 
Um, and I appreciate you taking the time kind of out of your busy schedule to join us on Social X. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please make sure you're following us. You can subscribe on YouTube, uh, SoundCloud, and recently only there, but we are shifting all of our past 10 episodes and all of our future episodes will also be available on iTunes and Spotify. So please subscribe if you haven't already, and we hope you'll join us again for next month's episode. 